0: What does theatre look like on the other side of this virus? Some variation of that question has been asked and answered in a million different ways. So many of these answers spoke to my heart's desire to see a more robust and diverse offering around the country. To see wholesale change in the way theatre business is done. One of my greatest concerns, though, is that administrators, boards of directors, and artistic decision makers will, when the time comes, program from a place of fear rather than opportunity, and the result will be a melange of Shakespeare retreads and dozens of productions of new plays by everybody's favorite writers. But what worries me most is too many theaters will not be able to even return at all when theater becomes a thing again. I can't stop thinking about the loss of new voices. The ones who have not broken through already. I worry about the playwrights who have been writing and hustling for years to get that first production only to have it dissipate into the ether when the theater is closed. Those are the writers we may never see or hear from again because when we start up, there will be far fewer theaters producing plays and a great deal of pressure to make up lost revenue. I know I'm being cynical. I can't help it, but I'm hopeful that there will be some risk-takers that rise into leadership positions. Those who don't see that new, unknown, unanointed writer as a risk, but instead as a gift. I know those leaders are out there. It's, It's hard to do what we do, and if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know while there isn't a single way to make it, and the entire concept of making it is dubious. There is this unifying element that nearly every player that I've spoken to has mentioned. Somebody at some theater took a chance on them, believed in them, gave them a first production. But with fewer theaters come fewer literary managers advocating for the new writer, fewer submission opportunities, fewer new play slots, Did I mention I'm worried? I do have a hopeful side. I'm hopeful that those of you out there just starting out will keep at it despite the unknown future. I want you to keep writing and sending your plays out and trying to make connections and friends at theaters because the truth is, I may be worried, but nobody knows anything about what the future looks like, especially me, anything can happen. But it won't happen for you if you're not in it anymore. And what helps me get through this and continue to bang away on my keyboard is the knowledge that there are so many great people out there working their asses off to make theater better. Some of them lost their jobs, but not their wills. Knowing they are out there pushing artistic leaders and boards to be better and not produce out of fear gives me hope that when this thing is behind us, whenever that may be, Our future will be different in ways we need it to be, and nobody will be left out. Welcome to the subtext, friends. My name is Brian James Polak, and I am the host of this podcast. We've been doing this every month since the beginning of 2018, but since the Rona has been all up in our faces, the subtext has been doing things a little different. What is usually a one-on-one conversation podcast has become a lot of different things over the past six months. I'm glad to say this month we've returned to our usual playwright chat. This month, I spoke to Tanuja Jagernoth, a Chicago playwright I have known for a couple years, but I've never had the chance to get to know her. I was a little apprehensive about this conversation because it marks the first time I spoke to somebody over Zoom, but this is the world now, and I had to stop being a baby about it. And of course it turned out fine. There's the usual technical issues we've all come to expect with this sort of thing. Technology is a wonderful and terrible thing, but I'm glad you all have the chance to get to know Tanuja. Um, So how have you been occupying yourself over the past few months?
1: Yeah, um, well, let's see. If I'm remembering back correctly, I was, whoa, March. We're, this is September, right? We're in in September. I know, isn't
0: that insane?
1: Yeah. Isn't um, it insane? Okay. All right. Sorry.
0: (laughs) How many times, how many times has the world (laughs) changed for you over the past six months?
1: How many times has the world changed for me? My gosh, that's a really good question too. Um, well, okay. Here's my, my take on it. Um, you know, 2019 taught me many lessons, Brian, um, many hard lessons. Okay. And, um, When I came into 2020 in January, I was thinking a couple things. Um, One, I was thinking, okay, the theater industry, as I have experienced it, is super individualistic and toxic, um, super white supremacist, um, and that's not how I want to live in the world as a human. Um, And yet, I... Freaking love writing plays and other things, and so how do how do I reconcile that? And so, I really came into January 2020 thinking about mutual aid a lot. Literally, like um, I will do what I can to uh, cultivate like collectives and and literal mutual aid, right? Where we change the social relationships for collective. Benefit and collective liberation. Um, So, what does that mean? It means I was like, well, okay, you know, I will continue building with this group of POC playwrights to have a regular, um, you know, writing group and reading group that is just POC only. So, it's giving people of color space beyond an external white gaze, right? So, you know, I cannot help anybody with that internalized white gaze, but at least. Um, I can help create a space for people of color to hear their, their work um, and dig into craft without having to navigate some of the more overt things that come in uh, mixed rooms or predominantly white rooms. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was like, okay, I'll work on that. And then um, I've been working with Um, Olivia Lilly at Prop Theater on um, a musical devised adaptation of Faust. And so we've just been preparing for that. Um, So when when the pandemic really began, the more physical based theater jobs that I had, those kind of were like, well, okay, we're postponing, we're canceling. And I am not going to lie to you, Brian, I was ready for a break. I was ready. I was tired. I was kind of heartbroken and just like ready to pivot, ready to refocus and go inward. And uh, so you mean,
0: you mean coming into this year, you were ready to pivot Yeah, away from theater,
1: not away from theater, but pivot, pivot um, toward mutual aid and toward mm-hmm. projects that felt um, aligned with my personal mission as an artist, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. like, a couple of things fell away and it was like, okay, well, you know, now I can focus on Faust and now I can focus on my organizing. Um, so before I came to theater in 2016, um, I was an acupuncturist and um, I helped create events and um, I picked up some skills and tools along the way. So in March, um, With the space and time available, I pivoted toward um, some local mutual aid organizing and um, started working with Edgewater Mutual Aid. And uh, one of the things that I have a little bit of experience in is um, working on like conflict resolution and community accountability processes. So I started helping out with situations that needed some support. so all that to say i was ready for to focus on mutual aid the opportunity presented itself in march and april so i was like all right theater industry um do what you gotta do i'm gonna Mm -hmm. focus on mutual aid in the face of wow we have this pandemic it's a material condition that i think we should all be responding to um you know and then we started seeing um the very I think of them as um, long overdue uprisings against white supremacy, right? So that has been, wow. I think the thing that I've been hearing and thinking and seeing and like what I want to affirm for a lot of people is for decades, right? For decades, if not centuries, but I know for decades, organizers have been talking about disability justice, trying to bring in, you know, um, critiques of the way we work, right? So um, I, could, I could name them, but I think if people do just a quick search for disability justice activism, they will find everybody they need to find, but I will definitely lift up Mia Mingus, um, Leah Lakshmi, Samaras, and Samarasana, uh, and many others. Um, also, people for decades have been trying to promote the idea of prison and police abolition. So, uh, Miriam Kaba, in particular, comes to mind, um, as well as some, some really amazing Chicago-based people, Barbara Ransby, Beth Ritchie. Um, we have so much already laid out for us in terms of, like, how to practice disability justice, how to practice mutual aid, how to practice prison abolition and police abolition. So now we're in this moment where I hope a lot of people are seeing the relevance for all of that if they haven't seen it before. And then I think we're also seeing like some institutions being like, okay, I guess it's time to listen. (laughs) Right. So
0: there's been so, there's been so much happening over the past, I mean, there's been so much happening and needing to happen for the past forever, but concentrated in these, in these six months so far, there's been so many um, protests and so many statements and, and a lot more pressure being, uh, real direct pressure being put on theater institutions, for example. Um, and a lot of institutions are responding. Do you get a sense that actual, real, change in the way that it needs to manifest is manifesting?
1: I don't know. Um, All I I can really speak to is my experience uh, right now with like, um, you know, the one theater company that I'm working directly with um, on Faust, right? So I'm working with Prop Theater. And, um, you know, in our room, uh, I would say yes, Um, I would say, but this is kind of a thing that Olivia has been open to, since I met Olivia, right, um, really asking, you know, how can the rehearsal room be an equitable space? And as divisors, um, I think a democratic process and listening to people and really incorporating a multiplicity of ideas and not just centering one vision and one voice, I think that that ethic and practice was already a thing. So in this moment, It it doesn't feel like I have to push really hard um, to be like, yes, and let's let's talk about this, let's talk about that, right? Um, uh, And I know, and I can't speak for um, prop theater, but what I do believe they're doing is really asking those hard questions, being like, how can we put into practice institutionally um, some of the really awesome things that we do in our rooms? and that's a, that's a process. I know that's a, that's a big process. And, um, I know Olivia is trying to engage her artistic associates in that conversation, you know, to the best of her ability. Right. Um,
0: you said in, in 2016, you came to, you came to theater. Did you have no relationship with performing arts or or playwriting before then?
1: Pretty much. Yeah. Um, I've always been a writer, scribbling things, um, and I've always wanted to do theater. Um, Freshman year of high school, um, I was basically given the information from my parents that um, if I don't get a scholarship to go to college, I probably won't be going to college because it's really expensive. So um, I learned in freshman year that if you happen to graduate at the top 5% of your class, you, I grew up in Arizona, so you qualify for a full ride um, to one of the state schools. So um, I remember, freshman year in my English class we 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 set these goals and I made it my goal to graduate in the top five percent of my class and the way that I interpreted you know what you needed to do it wasn't just about your GPA somehow I got this idea that you have to do every single thing in your school in terms of extracurricular activities <laughs> so um, I played tennis, I played volleyball. I was on student council for four years. I was president of the science and environmental club. I, <laughs> I even spent some time in the physics club. Um, doing what? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> so <laughs> I did so many things. And I um, uh, ended up graduating second in my class. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this to say I was really busy. Um, but I really wanted to hang out with the theater people, right? Um, I don't think this is a real thing, but I also have this narrative in my head, some memory that like when you were a thespian, when you're getting inducted into like the National Thespian Society or something, they would come to your house in the middle of the night and pick you up, no seriously, and like take you to some like undisclosed location And then do some sort of like ceremony with you. And I was like, I want in on that. And, you know, you know, theater people like, I think I was actually really enamored with the stage managers who were all black and carried a Leatherman. Uh, Fast forward to 2015, I had super cool opportunity to go to a uh, one week writing workshop for people of color. Um, called Voices of Our Nation's Arts, and it's it's a multi-genre writing workshop, and um, this year, um, I was able to study playwriting with Kim Ewell, who is a dramaturg and a playwright, and that week was amazing. That was in the summer of 2015. Um, you know, I came in, and I was like, y'all, I don't have a theater degree. I don't have anything. They're like, you don't need a theater degree to write plays to NUJA. And I told them the story about, you know, the thespian dream getting picked up in the middle of the night and stuff. And they were like, I don't think that's a thing, but um, you're one of us. Just, just, just consider this your initiation, have a cup of wine. Um, and let's, let's call it a day. So I was like, wow. what, what,
0: what was your, what was your life like? Um, <laughs> like when you took this, this, when you attended this writing thing, like, what were you up to? What, like, how are you mm. f- sort of like living and fulfilling yourself?
1: Ooh, fulfilling is a really good word. Um, so at the time I was the, um, sole owner and operator of a sliding scale wellness center called Sage community health collective. Um, we offered, individual and community acupuncture, body work services, uh, workshops and things, all um, in the effort to create collective wellness and liberation. Um, and we had a framework that I still try to apply to my rooms and spaces that I'm in, which is, you know, we were body positive, um, trauma-informed um, and harm reductionist. And um, you know, I was doing, I was working my butt off is what I was doing. So, you know, six to seven days a week, um, trying to basically like run the space, um, manage people who were renting the space, taking care of my own patients. I was an acupuncturist at the time, um, you know, and that involves all the, like marketing, outreach, patient research. Uh, I wasn't getting enough rest and um, I mentioned 2015, too, because that is the year that uh, my best friend passed away from cancer. Um, So I was like, when I went to Vona, I was in a moment of a little bit denying the inevitability that she would be passing away soon. Um, And I actually came back from Vona and about a month later got, you know, one of those finality types of emails from her which was sort of like we're not going to continue treatment and you know this is it so um, I can say when I went to Vona too I was also in a process of like you know grieving um, the changes in my collective we had started as a four-person collective um, we set it up where as a worker collective, so everyone owned um, a fair share of the collective, everyone made the same amount. Um, the challenge when you're an acupuncturist and a body worker, um, there aren't like tons of, um, you know, grants and money just laying around for you. Um, you can take loans out and things, but we didn't do that. We also chose not to be a nonprofit, And so we were a business. And so uh, we did our best. Um, We charged what felt was ethical um, that did not really pay us a living wage. Um, So, yeah, by 2015, I was definitely feeling it um, physically, mentally, emotionally, financially, um, not paying on my student loans, watching that debt creep up, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the interest, Adding up, right? It wasn't. It wasn't a cool situation. I was doing a lot of work to create community for other people um, while feeling quite isolated myself, right? So it was like this perfect storm of not good. Um, one of the but things was all this. Ha- sorry, was all this yeah. happening
0: in Chicago?
1: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm, for sure. So when Pam passed away in November of twenty fifteen, I was like, okay we're done. (laughs) We're calling it a day. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, life is short. Um, um, And if there are things that you want to be doing, you really need to go do them. Because I think, you know, I had um, lost my father-in-law back in 2006. And that was a blow. And that was a, a huge moment where, you know, we had to grapple with mortality. But losing my best friend, um, she was not even 36 when she passed. Um, you know, that, that really drove home this idea that like, uh, I'm not special, um, and time is not in my control. Um, so let's go, let's, let's, let's get to it. So, um, you know, I, I gave, uh, you know, the disappointing news, time to close Sage. And, uh, in, I will not say March of 2016, we closed and I didn't know what I was going to do, um, except, uh, I was like, well, There's gotta be a way to learn the industry of theater without going to grad school. I really do not wanna go to grad school. I really do not want more student loan debt. I reached out to Chicago Dramatists um, where I had taken a playwriting class before with um, (laughs) uh, just like the basic introductory playwriting class. Why is that Um, funny? It's funny because I took it so seriously. It oh, oh okay. Basement.
0: I was like I was like I don't know what the context was for that <laughs> cuz there's a story. <laughs> <have>? <laughs> laughter
1: Cuz <'Cause> I <laughs> I took it so seriously is what it was. Like it, the the class I think I took it maybe in 2014 and you know, I was like okay, it's time to write plays, you know, and um um so anyway, I was like, okay, well, why don't I just check out Chicago Dramatists? So I go, um, I, I literally walk in the door, um, the intern coordinator happened to be there. I say, hey, I'm wondering if you're offering any internships, and um, the intern coordinator at the time was like, oh, yeah, cool, just, you know, why don't you email me your cover letter and resume. and um, At the time, Chicago Dramatist was located on the second floor at 1105 West Chicago, right above the Big Shoulders coffee shop. So I literally went down to the coffee shop, um, got a coffee, sat at the counter, started up a um, Google Doc on my phone and wrote my little cover letter (laughs) with my thumbs. I was like, I think my resume is up to date. Yes, I emailed the person and Um, A couple days later, they're like, yeah, cool, come over for an interview. So interviewed, got the internship, and that summer was magical. Um, I get to take free playwriting classes. I'm finally doing theater at a new play development center, um, and I'm learning, and I'm seeing, um, you know, some of the things that we know. Exist in the theater industry.
0: We're talking the problems.
1: We're talking white supremacy. We're talking right. sexism. We're talking um, the challenges of like under resourced nonprofits. We're talking like unfair workloads. We're talking, um, kind of gatekeeper types of behaviors. We're talking, I call it all reindeer games and shenanigans is what I call it, where it's like, you don't say what you mean. You don't mean what you say. Um, there's a lot of ego and you kind of have to like kiss people's butts in certain situations and like fake shit. I don't like that. I don't like to be like that. Um, I was meeting some really cool people at the same time, right? Like people who are like, you know, would be like, okay, here's the deal. Don't do that. Do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> here's how yes and works <laughs> in right. a meeting. Um No, but I was learning. I was just sponging things up too. I was just soaking it up. And at the time I was like, you know, okay, so this is my DIY MFA. Um, This is, if I was to go to a, um, sorry for the sound in the background. If I was to go to a typical um, learning institution, um, I know I went to grad school for acupuncture, right? Um, I'd be dealing with probably similar dynamics. Um, So consider this. (laughs) an alternative to grad school focus on what you're here to learn and so I did and um, that unpaid internship turned into a part-time job due to um, we'll call it um, administrative turnover and then (laughs) 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 turnover in the arts admin world and then um, part-time became time and and and, um that's when I got my first ever operations job and I learned like oh I have a mind for operations cool um so the whole time I'm taking classes and primarily studying with um Dana Lynn Formby who uh is just a brilliant playwright and a brilliant teacher and um like I got to be a part of a writer's group for a minute and the combination of those classes and the writer group gave the motivation and the container for me to just write my butt off and then find out what do you do with a, with a play. Once you write it, I set up a new play exchange profile. Um, I learned the value of, you know, submitting things. Um, so I tried to start submitting things, um, that didn't feel icky. Um, what else? Oh, and that, you know, we're free. Um, I haven't yet done a ton of paid submissions.: um,
0: what, what do you find yourself writing about when you were you know, taking <laughs> these classes and first you're, you know writing your first pieces? like what was coming out?
1: I love that question, man. Um, one of the first plays that I wrote, um, actually, um, I believe it was called jellyfish. And it was, it was um, uh, a play about a friend who dies. Um, And I know that that is absolutely connected to a mourning process for my friend, Pam. And um, so definitely grieving. Um, And your question is, right on. I was actually thinking about this uh, last night, um, because there's a play that I've been calling my cancer play. Uh, I call it Fuck Cancer, and now I call it Three Cheers for Nantucket. Um, And it is also about grieving um, not only the loss of an individual, but it is about me, in some ways, grieving a profession that I let go of. Um, you know, being an acupuncturist for 10 plus years, right? Like, I think it definitely became part of my identity. So there's that, but then also grieving the reality that I couldn't save my best friend using the medicine that I had given many years to, and then also grieving the reality that um, I just couldn't be there for her in the way that I wanted to be while she was uh, dying. You know, And she's not the only one. There were multiple people where I just felt like, um, I'm not able to show up for you. I have to be working. If I don't work, I don't pay my rent. I don't run this business that many people rely on for, um, health healing wellness and things like that, the, the kind of grieving that massive contradiction.
0: Mm. Did you feel a sense of guilt?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, a hundred percent. And whether that's, whether that's correct or not correct, rational or irrational, it's, it's just how I mm-hmm. felt. Um, so there's, you know, a bit of that. And then um, also what was coming out was some of these like longstanding identity questions for me. Um, I am I was born in, in Guyana, in former British Guyana, which is in South America. I uh, was raised in Arizona and then I came to Chicago in 2001. Um, so this question of like, what is Indo-Caribbean identity? is um, really huge for me. Um, What does it mean to be an Indo-Caribbean person in the US? Um, And so I started writing a play that deals with some of that. Um, I started writing a play that deals with some um, childhood sexual abuse that happened when I was real young. Um, I started writing about also like the challenges that come with running a collective and having to rely on other people. I mean, all this stuff just started (laughs) coming out. Um, And, you know, it's funny because I I feel like I've been a writer forever, um, but something about the form of playwriting rooted in image, rooted in um, like juxtaposing, conflicting images in particular, um, telling a story through a certain structure with imagery i think that just like woke up all this stuff and it it kind of makes sense to me when you think about like um trauma often being housed in your in your right side of your brain as they say um and in the body
0: how did you or how do you because i'm sure it's an active process today how do you take trauma or 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 use trauma to create in the creation of of making something I'm not sure if I'm wording that question right but you have trauma in your life and you're writing about it how does how does one become another
1: that's a really good question um, I think for me I just listen and start there <laughs> mm-hmm. so that's really vague but it means like um, getting into the body and um, my first writing coach ever uh, was Meenal Hadratwala, and I met Meenal in 2009, I want to say. Um, Meenal wrote a book called Leaving India, and I saw that, and I was like, oh, my God. It was just a revelation because I had never seen a book um, until then that actually named Guyana as a location to which Indians had gone um, You know, from so she wrote a whole book about the the Indian diaspora, and um, I was like, I have to reach out to this person. And she um, was like, Yeah, I I I do body based writing classes. So I took a class with Minal called Writing from the Chakras. And her approach that I've been using since then is, you know, get into your body, whether it's through meditation or gentle yoga or some practice. You could dance party it, whatever. Mm -hmm. you listen and you, you pay attention to the images and, um, and stay with them. Right. And um, I think that's, that's, that's how I do it. And then um, like, I'm listening for what I'm obsessed with and just not telling myself, okay, no one wants to hear about that you may be obsessed with, you know, white supremacy culture, um, but mm, why don't you write about something more appropriate and marketable, like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know, what's Minnie Kaling writing about these days, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, uh, so just kind of, um, for me, and I truly give everybody, right, the freedom to be the kind of writer that they are and need to be and want to be, right? But for me, I, I guess it means, yeah, like, listening for what needs to be said,
0: have you ever had a fear of of sort of triggering yourself by you know, thinking about past traumas and you know re experiencing them through mm-hmm. this process?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um uh I my experience honestly is um I'm often triggered, okay, mm-hmm. and it's not just because I'm trying to make art in order to heal, right? It's um, going into certain spaces, going into certain rooms, experiencing certain microaggressions. Like I'm constantly experiencing like, whoa, this reminds me of this really terrible thing that happened or whoa, you know, theater from, from my experience, um, there's a lot of harm that's happening constantly, right? And so um, I'm regularly uncomfortable. Um, if I am working on something and it is bringing up a lot of emotion and a lot of discomfort, um, I take a break. If it's if I'm writing for my own benefit and for my own healing, I know that it's worth it. And um, there are you know tools and techniques you can use to to get words on the page. Um, and I think I think it's really important. And it's delicate, right, to say, like, your consent to that kind of process is really important. Um, Your self-care in a process like that is really important. If you know you're working on something that is deeply personal and very real for you, really, like, how can you take care of yourself, you know, before you start writing, as you start writing, and then after you start writing. And then for me, I think it's like the process has to be... um, very self-motivated and self-driven so um it's tricky it's really tricky like could I write for instance a play that was commissioned in that way I don't know
0: Mm -hmm. right because there's sort of like a a guiding structure associated with usually (laughs) associated with that
1: Mm -hmm. and potentially like a coercion right like an external deadline or something so you end up writing to the deadline um, instead of writing what you need to write right um but I don't know. Deadlines are really awesome. I love a deadline too. So um, with this, what this is making me remember, there was a project that I did um, called the body project uh, back in probably, I don't know, 2014. And um, that small project um, we did when SAGE was still open and uh, we got to have rehearsals in the SAGE space it was really special. And I wrote a piece that was exploring um, my childhood sexual abuse. And I remember being like I'm ready to tell this story and most of it I wrote on my bed face down just like um, with a notepad and a pen and like not even looking right but scribbling what I can scribble and then laying down Mm. (laughs) and taking a break but I got it done and um, you know I really don't know how it works but um, this is something that I had been you know obsessing about really my whole life wondering like what was the story and what's the truth and after I wrote this piece and um, had a chance to be a part of this performance where I presented it I stopped obsessing about it Mm. that experience brought me some integration and so um, it was hard and I will I will definitely say like it was it was activating, it was uncomfortable, it was super intense, um, and I'm glad I did it. You know, it was healing. Um, in the healing practice that I am familiar with, and you know, a lot of people who practice healing justice, we, we talk about healing not being a linear process, right? And um, in acupuncture, too, we talk about, you know, pain and sensation. Are two different things um harm and discomfort are two different things right so how so um, can you can you yeah, talk about that absolutely so for instance um what we would do when i was doing acupuncture would be kind of like all right um right after you insert the needle you will feel you know, a momentary sharp pain, kind of like a pinch, um, like a little mosquito bite or a bee sting that goes away. Then you might feel other sensations like a numbness or a tingling or a pressure um, or a throbbing. All of that is normal. It means that circulation is beginning to happen um, on a super local specific level, but also we're you know, activating your muscles, your fascia, um, your chi, if you will. Um, I learned a lot about those distinctions, because I think in our culture, our society, any kind of sensation gets categorized as pain, right? So someone might feel like, a jolt of, of of energy down their fascial line on their arm after a needle's been placed and they'll be like ow and I'll be like okay let's talk about it what was the sensation like it was like electricity is it still there no it's not right so it's like okay cool that's normal that's okay right this is the experience that we expect and that is actually part of the process right and I actually make um A parallel to when we're doing um, uh, discussions of harm and accountability in theater practices and theater spaces because um, you know this this word um, harm sometimes gets used incorrectly right so if I hold you Brian accountable for something you did you might be like whoa I'm not used to this sensation of being held accountable. I'm not used to the sensation of discomfort Mm -hmm. of being like called on my shit. So I'm going to say, you know, I'm in pain and what I've been, I've been
0: harmed now.
1: Yes. You know, and that's a form of gaslighting. So what we can do is have a moment and be like, so what, what is the sensation you're having? What is the experience you're having? Let's talk about, you know what's really going on here, um, and so so we then have an opportunity to parse out right like um, what harm really is and how the structure, how the systems, how the operations create harm, and how we can prevent that and then intervene when it happens, um, and then transform the conditions that allowed it to happen. And then, um, hopefully repair relationships right after harm has occurred. So anyway, um, yeah. Uh,
0: So you were talking about how, when you first started getting involved in working in, you know, the theater industry after leaving, um, your wellness center, you started to see right away, uh, the problematic you know nature of the industry uh it sounds like it's because you had are you have years of experience of intuiting these things and, and understanding harm and understanding um the cause and effect of these things and i wonder if that's part of the reason why a lot of this has perpetuated for so long is that so many people working in it didn't come into it with the same kind of experience life experience like it seems like this is a benefit for having um, you entering this industry and then suddenly being like, oh shit, this is a problematic place to be working. And I don't mean Chicago dramatists. I mean Mm -hmm. the American theater, right?
1: I don't know. I don't, I think there have been people for decades and decades seeing the same things that I saw. Um, And I don't necessarily think I'm any like, you know, more special than anyone else. But I think the difference between me and others is like, yeah, I came in as a, whoa, how old was I? Oh gosh. 2016. I was 37. Yeah. So, you know, having had some years on me, um, having made some mistakes, having learned a couple things, I, I wasn't the frog in the boiling water that was used to it. I was jumping into the boiling water, you know, um, expecting something very different
0: (laughs) right but the truth the the reality is lots of people have been saying the water is hot for a very long time
1: correct i think so Yeah. yeah and i just i really you know um for instance 2016 was the year that the profiles article came out in the chicago reader and i remember reading that article the summer of 2016 um actually uh i was i i saw the um issue of the Chicago Reader on the coffee table at Chicago Dramatists and I read that article at Chicago Dramatists and then went and swept one of the rehearsal rooms and I I swept with vigor Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know and I was like what have I gotten myself into here and um it was disappointing it was heartbreaking it was sad and um what I remember you know um about that example in particular, right, there was no board. So there was no accountability structure for the practices that were going on. And there were people involved, um, like Erica Daniels, right, who had been um, told and asked for support, you know, she was aware of what was going on. And she made certain choices to not address certain behaviors that we know are deeply harmful. So right, like, people have been trying to speak up and speak out and see change for a really long time.
0: Right. And I think what I've been thinking on and talking to people about is in this year of 2020, where it seems like things are really beginning to coalesce in a way that they never have before. Will the necessary change actually take hold and and I try I'm trying really, really hard not to be not to be cynical about it. Um so so I ask these questions of others in the hopes that somebody will you know give me some hope that mm-hmm. change will happen and um thing there's another side of this and things will be better. And I don't mean COVID, I mean, you know, um the white supremacy of of the American theater and the and and such. So mm-hmm. I asked that of you, like, like, you know, things are coalescing and, and people are talking in ways that they haven't talked before. Um, do you see this as, like, a turning point?
1: I really do, um, to be honest. Um, and I think that as a collective, right, I, I see um, different people – putting out information in different ways. I see conversations happening in many different spaces. I see a lot of people saying like, okay, enough is enough. Um, but then I also am seeing more white people and predominantly white institutions saying like, oh God, okay, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we we made a statement, now how do we activate our statement? And I think that change in, in the industry and in institutions is not going to be immediate. Um, I will honestly be just watching, right, for the next year, two years, three years. Um, like in an individual, um, and this is this is what I know most intimately is when when I was working with patients, um, you know, and it, it, if somebody came in and said, "I'm having these really intense um, sinus headaches, and um, I really want them to stop," um, we might talk about their diet, right, as mm-hmm. one thing, and I might have a hunch that the pizza that you eat every day may be contributing to those sinus headaches, right? In your general sense of lethargy. As a harm reductionist though <laughs> I'm feeling cold out right now. <laughs> oh no, I'm sorry. Well, hopefully this will be helpful. I don't know. Um, but as a harm reductionist, I would not say, well, what you need to do is stop eating the pizza right now, right? We're going to have a conversation and we're going to say, how do you, what do you attribute to the harm that you are experiencing, right? The pain you're experiencing. And I would love to hear your analysis. And so then based on your analysis, what are you willing to do? And if, if someone's like, nothing then cool. I cannot do anything for you. What I can do is hold, you know, an open space. I can hold space for you to continue coming to, you know, I can move your chi. I can, um, you know, I can offer information. I can offer herbs. I can offer support. I can offer guidance. But the person who needs to make that individual change is um, the individual, right? So on an individual level, you see small accumulations of small changes that add up to big changes, but it takes time. Um, On an institutional level though, like the power is there to make change. The power is there to say, okay, we know, we've got some open secrets that we've been keeping. It's time to come correct and say no more right? So um, I'm thinking of boards that, that know who they've been sheltering, who know who they have been enabling. It's time for them to say, okay, we're done. We're done. It's time to do better now. Uh, and it's time for anyone else who like, you know, has been observing things, but keeping quiet, it's time to, you know, get courageous and say, you know, on behalf of the people who cannot speak to the people with positional power, I'm going to tell you, here's what I know. Or here's what so-and-so has been saying and you've been calling them crazy. I'm going to back them up right now. I have a hunch there are just a lot of people in positions of power that have an opportunity to act, you know, even 10% more courageous and that will help make the institutional changes occur, right? So That's one thing. And then I also, um, coming back to the, um, playwrights collective, um, for people of color, you know, we need to be making spaces that, um, help us to break down some of these internalized oppressions. And I really think that like playwrights in general, actors in general, right? Like the work, um, will be ongoing and long-term, but the more that we can kind of identify the ways in which we have internalized, um, any harmful messaging and push back against it and say, you know what? No, I don't want that. I want this. Um, The more we all do it, the better, especially if you're like an established playwright, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So, right. There's like the, the, we see you white American theater statement. And there are a lot of people of color who have signed onto it, right? If they keep speaking out, if that type of statement gives, more playwrights, not just people of color playwrights, but all playwrights courage to be like, you know what? I don't want that either. I don't want that either. I want this. Yeah. There's no play unless I'm involved, Brian. So like literally <laughs> owning the means of production is really important to me and being like, I have value in this equation. I don't have to just, you know, wait around and submit my work and hope somebody thinks it's special, right? I'm done with that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think we all have to be done with that. (laughs) Um,
0: Yeah. But we all want to be asked to the dance, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I, I have said for a minute, coolness is a trap. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm not, I don't care about it. Um, quick story about high school again um uh, the one i went to two dances maybe i went to all four dances, but i was always working them and the um my favorite dance of all was when i went as a crash test dummy that was it was part of <laughs> it was part of students against drunk driving yes this was the kind of uh, student I, was. I was hoping
0: this was prom
1: <laughs> um I think this was prom. I think this was prom my sophomore year. That's, like, I went as a crash test dummy, and it was the best dance ever because I wore this um, gray crash test dummy suit and the whole mask and everything, and, um, you know, I was just, like, basically performing a crash test dummy the whole time. I could act, like, just A ridiculous idiot um, dance like a ridiculous idiot. I took pictures with my friends and everything and only they knew who it was inside the crash test dummy suit.
0: I love this so much.
1: (laughs) So that's how I show up to the dance, Brian. Like, I don't know.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, I think this is probably (laughs) the headline for the episode. Went to prom as a crash test dummy. (laughs)
1: And I would do it again. <laughs> I would. Um. Um,
0: can you talk a little bit of, a little bit more? You mentioned uh, at the beginning this project you're working on with Prop Theater, um, devising Faust as a musical. I'm I'm very curious to learn more about this. Yes. Like we. Faust is one of those pieces we generally have an idea of what it is, you know, making a deal with the devil, right? Uh, tell, talk about how this story is manifesting for you in another way and 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 uh, becoming a musical.
1: Um, I don't know what exactly inspired Olivia to ask me to do this project, um, but I have a hunch that. Um, you know, when I was at Victory Gardens as the Marcel McVeigh Management Fellow for six months in 2019, you know, and kind of sharing some of my experiences with Olivia um, that may have reminded her of the Faust narrative.
0: (laughs) Okay, okay.
1: (laughs) So she was like, you should should do Faust. I've done Faust. Um, You should do it. And I think that you'll bring something a little bit different to the conversation. So, um, yeah, we talked and I was like, well, here's, here's what comes to mind. And so where we're currently at is uh, actually Monday will be the last day of our workshop. Um, and this is, this, is a, this is a process that Olivia has developed over the years um, mm-hmm. as a, a devising playwright. And so I just feel grateful that I get to learn it and practice it. It's really fun and I love it. Um, so we uh, talked about the concept and, you know, going back to the things that I'm graving and the things that I'm kind of um, sorting through, <laughs> trying to make sense of, our um, Faust um, is set in Logan Square we will be talking about the ways in which people who make their living in the gig, gig economy um, make these sorts of deals with quote unquote, the devil all the time, um, but we think it's worth it. And you know how we grapple with things like um, paying our rent and affording health insurance and having friendships um, building relationships. Like these are all things that are in the conversation. Mm. Um, we've been asking a lot about like, what is the devil? Um, is there even a God in this world? And so I'm not going to tell you much because I want you to sure. come see the show and find out. But um, uh, <laughs> it's been a really fun process. Like I uh, got a chance to take a Poetics of Playwriting class with uh, Maricela trevino Horta and in that class, I learned about a non-Western structure called Gets. It's um, a storytelling structure that is four acts instead of three, mm. and it's rooted in um, Korean, Chinese, Japanese storytelling and poetry, actually, right? Um, and uh, so, I'm really inspired by that non-Western structure for this Faust, um, so we're exploring that. Um, the composer on the project is um, Alec Vaughn And so they will be creating the music and um, we'll be collaborating on lyrics and things. And um, yeah, Monday is our last day of rehearsal in the workshop phase. So there's a, there's a workshop phase where we generate ideas and have these really fun, amazing conversations, trying to define terms, trying to understand the rules of the world. Um, The ensemble members um, are all, like, crafting their character, Um, and we used a process inspired by Minal Hadrawala's writing from the chakras um, whereby we are building characters from the first chakra up um, through all the seven levels. So we had eight rehearsals and Mm -hmm. every every rehearsal took on a different chakra level. Um, So making space for the character, the ensemble members to build their character from the chakra up to really find out who is this person at their core um, and then how will they be interfacing with these systems of oppression. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, after the workshop ends on Monday, I and Alec, we get to go away, we get to write. Um, I have a first draft due at the end of November, so. Um, oh, wow,
0: that's super soon so so is this is this process essentially um the work you're doing with the ensemble and Olivia essentially building the world together and then you're taking all of these humans that they they created, and this is your structure in which you're going to then write a piece mm. yeah essentially these yeah. are the rules like these are the behaviors of these people mm-hmm. this is how they interact, this is how they feel, et cetera et cetera. Mm-hmm. Have you worked in this in a process like this before? No. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, I I got I had a chance to do a little bit of devising with Free Street Theater. Um, it was a different process, right? And, um, but I, I loved this process so far. I I love this idea that, um, as a playwright, I didn't have to get to know all of these characters only by myself. I got to really take into account other people's perspectives and, you know, like what is, um, sitting with them, what is active for them, what is exciting to them. And I get to be like, yes, 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 yes. Um, it's a little bit, you know, facilitating. It's a lot bit curating. Right. So I get to take like, this is my notebook. I have like tons of notes and, um, I just get to go and I have a, a a working outline, if you will. And, um, then in November we'll have, um, or December have, you know, a reading, and then the group can be like, um, you know, here's what's working. Here's what I would propose is actually more true to my character. Then I go back and write, you know, rewrites. Right. Yeah. And if, uh, our U S government can do it, it really needs to do. Um, hopefully, Uh, we can come back to theater in a truly safe way in 2021. So if all things go according to our hopes, um, it'll be produced in spring of 2021.
0: Oh God. I hope that, I hope that's a thing.
1: (laughs) I'm going to be open. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good. I love this (laughs) process. This process This process sounds awesome. Like, you know, at the, at the heart of what brings me to theater, and I'm sure a lot of people, and per- probably you as well, is the concept of uh, being with others and telling stories with others and building worlds and, with others. And this ensemble building process that you all are doing and that uh, Olivia has created sounds, it's like this idyllic, perfect sort of like bringing together this, what theater really is. Uh, and, you know, I love to go off by myself and start a new play from scratch. And it's my world and my characters and mine, 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 mine. Uh, but there is something about the sort of like group investment, right? When everybody has a piece of it and is building it from the ground up, um, that is just so lovely.
1: Yeah. I, you know, will I write every play like this? No right but i'm so glad that i get to do this play this, in this way um and speaking of investment um every single ensemble member as well as the um assistant director and the dramaturg on the project everyone will um get a percentage in our contract for royalties right mm-hmm. so like um uh, that felt important because the ensemble members, everyone on, everyone, everyone who's participating in this workshop is giving and bringing so much. Um, And so I look forward to sharing like um, that piece of it to the economic piece uh, with the whole ensemble and creative team. Um, And I'm really grateful that Prop is open to this idea too. Mm. Um, Yeah. So I'm interested in that too, like giving actors a lot more like economic uh, power and economic um, credits and come-ups, right? They put yeah. their bodies and beings on the line for us all the time.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. What haven't we talked about? You. We haven't talked
1: about you, Brian. We talk about me. We talk, <laughs> I talk
0: about me enough on this. I did, I did an entire episode that was just me.
1: Okay. <laughs> uh, well, as a writer, right? I will keep writing. And, um, you know, I, I, I keep on thinking about, like, I don't know what's going to happen in the theater industry, right? I really don't know. I really don't know. And, and because I know how I want to live and um, how I want to collaborate and interact with people, right, um, I feel like I will just keep on searching for, you know, collaborations and interactions that that are aligned right with my values and my politics and things like that. So, um, I don't see theater as my final medium of choice. Right. Um, even though I love it. Um, so, um, that's, that's what I feel like I can say, but what that will actually be, I cannot say because I don't know what the world's going to look like, but, um, no, I have been feeling very strongly. Like, you know, I've been a writer my whole life. Um, now I know more about, like, what makes a compelling kind of play, like, what is, like, the requirement for something to be live theater. Um, I feel like I understand better, like, what makes a compelling novel, what makes a compelling short story, what makes a compelling poem. Um, Not that I can write all these things, but, um, you know, I really ask the question of, like, Okay, if there are stories and things you want to tell, you know, it's really fun and cool to think about what's the best medium to tell these stories, right and And I'm not going to rule anything out. Um, even film, I'm not going to rule out um, um, because the world is changing.
0: Mm. yeah, it is.
1: Maybe I'll become a like a Twitter novelist. you know what I mean? <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's great. That's great. Catch me on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> My micro films.
0: Uh, can we see you do a micro film as a crash test dummy on TikTok?
1: Yeah, send me the suit. I'll do it today.
0: <laughs> That's what I want. I think, and I think a lot of people want that too.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. That's
0: great. <laughs> I think this is an awesome place to end. Uh, this is great. You. Thank you for talking to me.
1: (laughs) Thanks for the invitation.
0: I'm really glad we're able to do this. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. Awesome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Tanuja, for being my first Zoom chat. And thank you for listening. The subtext is brought to you by American Theater Magazine, a program of Theater Communications Group. The podcast is produced and hosted by me with help from associate producer KJ Jarbo. This month's episode was edited by KJ. The theme song is High by International Pen Pal. Please share the subtext with your networks, rate and comment wherever you get your podcasts. And don't hesitate to contact us if you have something to say. Our email is thesubtextpodcast at gmail.com. Here we are once again at the end. The play filling me up this month is The Berlin Diaries by Andrea Stolowitz. What an incredible play. It's moving, smart, and inventive. I loved reading it and I hope to see it one of these days.